Beloved, for those of you who may not know me, I'm the interim pastor here, Mike Sherritt. As Tiffany said, we're in this mini-series right now, The Believer's Conflict. You may have noticed, if you're relatively new to our worship service, we did something that might seem peculiar to you on page six. We specifically renounced, declared war, as it were, on three powerful entities. You renounced indwelling sin. Secondly, you renounced the corrupt, evil powers of this world that uh, destroy God's good creation. And then you sought to renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're going to focus on that third renouncement this morning. What's the premise behind doing this? The premise is this. Whether you're a believer in God or not, you innately want your life to flourish. You want to thrive. No one got up this morning and said, I aspire today to conflict, to trauma. I aspire to be lied to, to be be defrauded. Heavens no. We all want good in our lives. And therefore... If someone or something threatened your welfare, would you want to know about it? Of course you would. God, because he is so good and so kind, tells us in his word how life works. He tells us what you were created to do in order to flourish as a human being. Right there in the opening chapters of Genesis, the book of beginnings, God tells us what your life is supposed to look like when you're thriving as an image bearer. We saw last week that there's a principle at work for you to flourish. You need to know that something must be killed. We saw that sin entered into God's beautiful creation, and it must be thwarted constantly for you to be everything God created you to be. Now we're going to see that in addition from the enemy within, there's an enemy without. The deceiver, Satan, comes into God's good creation with a lie about God and his word. Has God said, you surely shall not die. So what principle is now at work for you to thrive and flourish as a human being? You need to know that there is a schemer on the loose that must be countered with truth from God. There's a schemer seeking to destroy you. In fact, he's worse than a schemer. The Bible tells us that the devil is a murderer, full of hate. He despises God and those who are made in God's image, and he would seek to thwart everything good about your life. Here's the way the apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, your adversary, so you woke up this morning not only at war with indwelling sin, you woke up this morning at war with an adversary. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's you and me. And one text in the New Testament that is particularly helpful to us is in Ephesians 6, 
And I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm going to read the first 14 verses, Ephesians 6, 10 to 13, about the nature of this struggle. Here's our text. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Notice how Paul ramps up the intensity of this conflict. It's personal. You're wrestling. That's a, a word from the ancient world that, that described two people in a conflict that was one when the victor put his knee on the other's head and gouged out his eyes. Mm-hmm. It's personal. It's formidable. These are the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This isn't something of Steven Spielberg's imagination. Far worse. And you have nothing in yourself to counter these forces. Nothing in yourself. But it's winnable. He says we stand strong in the might of God. God is stronger. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so... Paul tells us in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that what? You may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, a wonderful sermon would be all about the armor. That's not the one I'm going to preach this morning. There's a wonderful Puritan that wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Get that book. It's worth every penny you would ever pay for it. I want to talk about the schemes. What principle is it forced for your life to thrive? There is a schemer on the loose in this world whose desire is to devour you. You can only counter that schemer with truth from God's word if you're going to flourish as a human being. So let's look at three schemes that threaten your vitality and the health of this church. Number one, the schemer would seek to disrupt the unity of the church. Why? Well, two relatively undervalued facts. One, you cannot be healthy as a follower of Jesus apart from community. We individualist Americans really don't believe that. We kind of think we can go it on our own. I know that plagues my soul. Two relatively undervalued facts. You cannot be healthy as a follower of Jesus apart from a community of believers you do life with. And secondly, that community can't be healthy if what? If it's not unified. Everybody understands that. A house divided cannot fall. Divisiveness plus division equals devastation. Jesus himself said as much, Matthew 12, 25, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself can stand. 
That gives meaning to Paul's plea in Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, where Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. You are not called to create that unity. It is given to you by God. Our calling is to be eager to maintain that unity. So you're wondering, what is Satan's interest in destroying this given unity we have by our common fellowship in the Spirit of Christ? What's his interest in this? He absolutely hates God. And he's absolutely jealous of the love that God shares in himself, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit utterly delighting in one another. Satan hates that. And God wants you to be a part of that love and fellowship. He invites us into it, a stunning reality. God wants to share the love he has in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with us. And God wants himself glorified on the earth as we manifest that unity among ourselves. Do you see what's at stake? The glory of God being shown to the watching world as we display something of that unity, the way we get along with each other. That's what's at stake. That's what Satan wants to thwart. If you were the devil, how would you do that? One of the easiest ways was to just get people to focus on their differences. There might be problems in the sound this morning because we know who's at work in this situation. <laughs> Surprise, we have different personalities. We have different preferences. We have different politics. We have different perspectives on issues. So why not get an excessive focus on those so that we end up chafing being discouraged. This is what threatens your marriage day in and day out. Those little irritants. So we're not surprised that followers of Jesus see issues differently. There's a lot of background in this sound, isn't there? Is there? Okay, we'll send help up that way. So beloved, what do you think is the best way to deal with with potential disunity in the body. First, deal with sin in your own heart. That's why Paul says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Do you see what Paul is saying? He wants you to frame every issue. He wants you to frame 
every relationship. He wants you to frame the way you view your elders, your deacons, your Bible study leaders, boys and girls, your teachers at school, husbands and wives, your spouse. He wants you to frame that with your feet firmly planted in the heart of Jesus. Because when you're when your feet are firmly planted in the heart of Jesus and you are experiencing his patience with you, his gentleness towards your weakness, his love for you to forgive you of your sins, that melts the need for you to be right, the need for you to be in control, the need for you to criticize, the need for you to disparage people who think differently in you. Only only planted in the heart of Jesus does this need to create conflict dissipate. The, the point is you can't give away what you don't have. And if you're going to be patient and loving, you need to have your heart filled with the love of Jesus. Think about what biblical love is. It's a commitment to give your best to another person if even in the face of their worst, let me say it again, because you really are never loving another person without this. It is a commitment to give your best to another person, if even in the face of their worst. And where do we see that displayed for us? On the cross. We're crucifying Jesus, and what is he saying? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So now you have this beautiful frame. Gentleness, patience, humility, Bearing in love, don't do relationship without them. That's the first scheme. Disrupt the unity of the body. Many of you have worked very hard over the last year to preserve that unity. God is pleased. Second scheme, distract the church from its vision. Every organization has a reason for its existence. One way to talk about the mission of the church is its three faces. The church has an upward face. It seeks to glorify God in its worship. It has an inward face. We seek to bless one another in humble, other-centered servanthood, using our gifts for the edification of the body. And the church has an outward face, seeking to declare the goodness of God in word and deed, that the light of Jesus Christ would spread into the darkness. And one of the things Paul does constantly in his epistles is he shows us that, that none of these graces work without the gospel energizing them. The gospel energizes our upward face. The gospel energizes our inward face. And the gospel, of course, is the thing that motivates us as we look outward to bless the world in word and deed. But look at the end of Ephesians to see a critical component of the church fulfilling its mission. Ephesians 6 at verse 18. It's the next thing Paul says after he describes the armor of God to you. He says, praying at all times in the spirit did that mark your life and mine this last week praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for the saints you know he writes as a man who seems like he's in a desperate conflict 
with what? Indwelling sin and the schemer. Sounds desperate. This sounds really intense, almost over the top. <laughs> Pray for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Do you see what this means? Healthy spirituality is never not praying with dependence on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit using the Word of God to inform our hearts and minds, imagination, praying. And for me, it's at least two specific things. Lord, where is my selfishness eroding my ability to bless those around me? Lord, where is there an inordinate lust, craving, passion in me for things that distract me from loving and adoring you? Oh, Lord, show me. Show me my heart, my frailty, please. Rescue me, Lord, from me. That's one prayer. Praying at all times in the Spirit. Don't you think the Spirit wants to show you that about you? Of course He does. It's a part of His job description to convict you of sin. The flip side of that is the prayer Paul is very specific about. Pray for an opening for me to proclaim the gospel. That means that we are serious followers of Jesus constantly begging the Lord for opportunities. Lord, today, create an opportunity. Is it the person at work? Is it someone I happen to run into at the grocery store? Is it my neighbor? Is it time to reach out to a family member? It, what, Lord, you've put people in my life. Who are they? I'm praying for them. Praying for opportunities to make Jesus known in word or in deed. My wife has started walking before she hurt herself with uh, uh, someone in the neighborhood. Oh, Janice is praying about that relationship, praying for that person, asking the Lord to open that person's eyes. We'll walk by their house. Lord, please have open that person's. Give us an opportunity for the gospel. The last scheme I'll focus on, and we could go on and on and on, right? You're at war with an adversary who schemes, and you can only thwart those schemes with truth from God's word. Schemes to disrupt the unity of the church. Schemes to distract the church from its vision. And thirdly, schemes to disparage the king. It's very interesting how Paul ends Ephesians. Ephesians 6.24. He says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. That's convicting. <laughs> Do I love Jesus with an undistracted, incorruptible love? <laughs> Not very often. Why does Paul say this? He loves Jesus and he finds Jesus so lovely that Jesus should be loved with love incorruptible. He couldn't speak more glowingly of his Lord. So let's talk about the loveliness of Jesus that makes him incomparable to anyone else. Jesus embodied the perfect balance of truth with grace. Tenderness with conviction. Power 
with gentleness. Self-sacrifice without failure. Weakness without fear. Strength without bullying. Sovereignty without injustice. Anger without bitterness. Tears without hopelessness. Intensity without burnout. Brightness without blinding. Touch without abrasiveness. And zeal without harshness. I've only begun to describe him. It is no wonder that the people Jesus meets in the Gospels who were broken, desperate, disenfranchised, replete of their own resources, they were drawn to Jesus' humility, to his love, to his gentleness, to his patience. They were intoxicated with his glory. What did the broken find? Wholeness. What did the sick experience? Healing. Those in darkness saw what? Light. Those trapped in lies, liberated by the truth. The downcast revived in hope. The shaken fled to a refuge. The hungry knew satisfaction. And those in chains were unleashed into freedom. Beloved, you know this in your experience. The transforming power of the gospel. Quick sidebar, yesterday was our oldest son's 40th birthday, so Janice got out, I got out the scrapbooks and we sat on the sofa and we went back 40 years in the scrapbook and we saw pictures of Mikey as a baby. And there in our family scrapbook, young parents, you need to do this. You need to collect these kinds of things. I know it's all on your computer. We have pictures. That shows you how old we are. But uh, there in the middle of our scrapbook was this, was, uh, was it a Christmas letter, honey? I know you can't answer me, but there was, there was a, she's watching, she can't talk about, there was this one page list of the ways our lives had changed simply being at this church for one year. And we both looked at it and we went, wow. the grace of God using the means of grace to transform lives. Beloved, Satan wants to blind you or to the glory of Christ or disparage you to that glory. 2 Corinthians 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So do not be surprised that you might get thoughts in your heart that God isn't good, that God isn't trustworthy, that God is an ogre. Don't be surprised. The powers of darkness would disparage to you the most lovely, ravishingly beautiful person in the world. So to be spiritually vital, what question do you need to ask? Is the Jesus I know the Jesus of revealed scripture? In my pastoral experience, I have seen two extremes that plague people from spiritual health. And that is this. They see Jesus as a taskmaster. The voice they hear when they read the Bible is Jesus saying to them, do more. You're not good enough. Buck up. 
try harder. Maybe that's your experience of Jesus. He's a taskmaster. On the other extreme, Jesus is a teddy bear. Somebody you cuddle up next to when you need to feel good. What truth would the schemer hide from you that would revolutionize your commitment to Jesus Christ? What truth? It's the simple truth of how utterly committed Jesus is to you because of, of his ravishing love for you. That's one of the ways the schemer would seek to disparage your life, throw it into darkness, to keep from you the clear sense of how utterly committed Jesus is to you because he loves you. Now, where is that proven? The Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, the most fortified person in the history of the universe. He came full of the power of God. He could look at two loaves of bread and think them into enough to feed 10,000 people. He could stand in front of a grave, say one word, and raise the dead. He could stand on the ocean with the wind blowing and the, and the waves going crazy and say stop, and everything in nature, everything, without exception, falls to the sovereign control of the Lord Jesus Christ. He spoke or thought things into existence. There's a marvelous passage at the end of Isaiah 59 where we're told the Lord saw and it was displeasing in his sight. There was no one to intercede, no one who was righteous. And so what did God do? Isaiah sees a time when God himself would put on the helmet of salvation. God would don the breastplate of righteousness and a redeemer would come to Zion. He foresaw the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. And this idea that Jesus came with the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, among other things, alludes to the flawlessly perfect law-abiding life of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, if you keep the law of God, the law can't condemn you. If you break the law, the law can condemn you. That's why we're all condemned. We're all hopeless. We're all destined for an eternity apart from God if we're not keeping the law of God, and no one does. Here's what is remarkable about the Lord Jesus Christ. The law could make no assault on Jesus. He was righteous in the sight of God. And yet he asked his father on Good Friday 2,000 years ago, to condemn himself with the penalty of lawbreakers. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ took off the helmet of salvation and put on a crown of thorns, being cursed for you. On the cross, Jesus took off the breastplate of righteousness so that he could bear in his body the sins of his people. You are saved by the cross of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, and he is all too pleased to those who believe in him to crown them with the head of his salvation, to wrap them in the robe of his beautiful righteousness, and to say, you are mine. I am never letting you go. If he would suffer and give up himself like that for you, there is nothing in heaven and earth that can separate you from his love. That, beloved, is a scheme the evil one would seek to shroud from your eyes.
Do you see it? If you don't, ask the Spirit, open my eyes to see this Jesus. Help me believe. Dispel my unbelief. Let me see what he's done for me and believe. And may the Holy Spirit fill your heart with the love of Jesus Christ. Yeah, you're really safe. You're really safe in a world where there's a schemer loose seeking to devour. Safe in the love of Jesus. Let me pray for us. In a very hostile, dangerous world, Lord Jesus, the one you came into for us and for our salvation, we are safe in Jesus Christ, covered with his righteousness, crowned with his salvation. So may our hearts be filled afresh and anew with this love. May we know your love is better than life. In Jesus' precious name, amen.